Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 34, Numbers chapters 32 and 33. Well, when we met last, Moses and the leadership council of Israel had just agreed to the request of Reuben and Gad that they be allowed to possess the land that Israel had just won from the Midianites, the land of Moab. Now this land, of course, was on the east side of the, of the Jordan. And, um, and what is now really mostly the modern day kingdom of uh, Jordan and this, this area would become primarily uh, Reuben's and Gad's territory. Now, there is no evidence that Israel's war with Midian, which God told Moses to prosecute, was to be in any way associated with the occupation of Moab. Okay. Rather... Yehovah's goal was to destroy those who had led Israel as a nation into adultery and idolatry by enticing them to cavort with pagan women and pagan gods. Okay. While the subject is not specifically dealt with in Numbers, it seems to me that what Israel should have done is simply defeat the Midianites and their ally Moab moved on and then left the former nation of Moab empty. Settling there was really not on the Lord's agenda. Now, Moses was very uneasy about this proposal. And even though Reuben and Gad agreed to send their very best crack troops to fight alongside the other ten Israelite tribes as the conquest for Canaan began, we can detect that all's not well. While what Reuben and Gad suggested did not fall within the covenant of Abraham, the land they wanted wasn't within the boundaries of the promised land. Um, and yet, we don't read of the Lord telling them no. In essence, Reuben and Gad would live outside the camp of Israel, outside the land of promise, because they saw more benefit in the plentiful pasture lands of Moab rather than living in the provision of the Lord in Canaan. Now, it's informative to ask ourselves first, why did Reuben and Gad, out of all the twelve tribes, decide to ask for this particular territory, that southern part, to the, just to the east of the Dead Sea. Their immediate reason was that they possessed large herds and flocks, and Moab was near perfect pasture land for them. But if we go back to a few centuries to when Jacob was giving his deathbed blessing to his twelve sons, we find some additional clues. And it begins with the fact that Reuben was essentially disowned. Okay. Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, was not given the traditional rights of the firstborn because Reuben had sexual relations with one of his father's concubines. Okay. Jacob stated that Reuben was as unstable as water. And therefore, he would never excel. So, Reuben had all the physical attributes and intelligence and advantages to do well, but he lacked morality and strength. He, he didn't have that solidness of character. And in time, we're going to see that Reuben preferred the nomad's lifestyle of ever being on the move, rather than settling down and having the more sedentary life that the rest of Israel would enjoy. 
Now, when recalling Jacob's blessings upon his sons, though it seems so implausible to our modern minds, grasp that each prophetic blessing was not so much upon an individual, not upon an individual son, as it was upon that son's future descendants. Okay. It was more intended as a prophetic oracle upon those thousands upon thousands of those who would become members of the tribe named after the son. Okay? So Jacob was essentially pronouncing the destinies of each of the tribes that his sons would spawn. He was pronouncing the characteristics that each of these tribes would develop, and those characteristics were but extensions of the already developed and displayed characteristics of his sons. Reuben's characteristic of instability would be passed along and realized within his tribe over the centuries, and it is what led the tribe of Reuben to choose unwisely to stay outside of the promised land in favor of staying in Moab, a land not set apart for God's people. Over time, Reuben becomes less and less prominent in Israel's history. In fact, some biblical historians claim that by King Saul's time, Reuben was absorbed into the tribe of Gad and all but disappeared. Other biblical writings don't support quite that severe of a consequence for Reuben, but rather what we do find is that the tribe of Reuben took on the lifestyle of Bedouins, and they wandered around the desert fringes of the Transjordan, moving around with their flocks and herds. Technically, Reuben still held territory and maintained their tribal identity, But practically, they didn't govern their territory. They didn't create infrastructure within it. They didn't defend it with vigor. So their territory more and more came under the influence of the tribe of Gad. As Bedouins, Reuben just didn't have a lot of interest in controlling territory. Now Gad had a little bit different destiny than Reuben. Jacob gave Gad the briefest of blessings, and it was a very strange blessing indeed. The blessing was Gad. A troop will troop on him, but he will troop on their heel. Now, make heads or tails out of that one. That sounds like a lot of gobbledygook. However, the word Gad is associated with the Hebrew root gedud, meaning troop, and its associated verb, ye, it's hard to pronounce, ye gudenu, all right, which means to raid, to raid something. Okay? This blessing by Jacob upon Gad was recorded essentially as a play on words. Okay? It's all about Gad's future as a military force, and the fact that they're going to have to fight off enemies all their days due to their location. Jacob's pronouncement upon Gad is much better translated in English as Gad, a troop, will raid him, but he, Gad, will raid on their heels. That makes a little more sense. In other words, Gad was going to be a tribe of warriors, and they would have have a rather hawkish attitude. They would be military-oriented out of necessity. Enemies would constantly harass Gad, but in the end they would generally win. And true to this 500-year-old blessing, Gad had become tremendously brave and effective fighters while they were out in the wilderness. And this is one reason that Moses insisted on having soldiers from the tribe of Gad accompany Israel into Canaan. Now further, Reuben and Gad, along with Shimon, Simeon, formed one of the four divisions of Israel. They camped on the south side of the tabernacle together. 
Reuben and Simeon were brothers. Their mother was Leah, okay, Jacob's first wife. Gad was the son of Leah's handmaiden, Siopah. Right, so there existed a natural relationship between these three. Okay. Now, in the Lord's divine providence, even though it was never meant for Reuben and Gad to settle where they did, they provided a means of protection. They provided a kind of defensive buffer to help protect the other tribal territories that would be located inside the promised land, as they were supposed to be, from the countless invaders that would keep coming from the east. Reuben and Gad would go on to bear the brunt of many of the marauders who wanted to pass through their territory to get to the other tribes of Israel. Now the start of verse 16 is important. And because in the English the tone of the conversation gets lost, we're going to talk about that for a minute. This section begins, and they came up or stepped up to him, meaning him is Moses. They came up, stepped up to Moses and said, that's, that's the verse. Okay. The Hebrew means more to beseech someone in a soft or intimate manner. In other words, the leaders of Reuben and Gad were not demanding that they were going to stay there in the Transjordan and refusing to move forward. Rather, they wanted to explain their reasoning in a, in a very respectful way for preferring the area of Moab for their homes and then make an offer that would satisfy the others and the Lord to show their intended and continuing loyalty to Israel and to the covenants of Abraham and Moses. Now, what they offered was that if they were allowed to settle in the Transjordan, they would build a place for their animals and they would build towns for their families, but they would also supply a large contingent of crack military troops to go forward into Canaan and fight alongside the other tribes of Israel. The Hebrew um, word for the kind of special troops being offered is nechalatz. All right. It literally it means to be picked out, to specially be specially selected. The idea is that these are the fiercest fighters. They're the best of the best. Further, these troops from Reuben and Gad would be the vanguard, the point men of the Israelite army as it fought and conquered its way through Canaan over the years. Now the deal is that these soldiers from Reuben and Gad would not come back to their tribal territory in the Transjordan until every Israelite tribe had possession of its own in the land of Canaan. They would stay and fight with their brothers as long as it took. Further, they would not ask for additional territory on the west side of the Jordan in the Promised Land. They would be satisfied to only live in the east because it was their own choice. Moses, undoubtedly with the approval of the leadership council, agrees to this proposal. Let's reread a small portion of Numbers chapter 32. We're going to start with verse 25 and go on to the end. Page uh, 190 in your complete Jewish Bible. Chapter 32. I want to read from 25 to the end. The descendants of Gad and the descendants of Reuben said to Moshe, Your servant will do as my Lord orders. Our little ones, wives, flocks, and all of our livestock will be there in the cities of Gilead. But your servants will cross over every man armed for war before Adonai to do battle, as my Lord says. So Moshe gave orders concerning them to Eleazar the Kohen, Yahshua the son of Nun, and the clan leaders of the tribe of the people of Israel. Moshe said to them, if the descendants of Gad and Reuben cross over the uh, Jordan with you, every man armed for battle before Adonai, and if the land is conquered before you, then you are to give them the land of Gilead as theirs to possess. But if they do not cross with you armed, they are to possess land along with you in Canaan. The descendants of Gad and Reuben answered, we will do as Adonai 
has said to your servants, We will cross over into the land of Canaan, armed before Adonai, and the land we will possess for inheritance will be on this side of the Jordan. So Moses gave the descendants of Gad and Reuben, and also to the half-tribe of Manasseh, the son of Yosef, the kingdom of Sihon, king of the Emori, and the kingdom of Og, king of Bashan, the country and its cities within its borders, along with their surrounding towns. The descendants of Gad built Devon, Atrot, Aroer, Atrot, Shaphan, Yatser, Yogbeha, Beit Nimra, Beit Haran, fortified cities and also enclosures for sheep. The descendants of Reuben built Heshbon, El Ale, uh, Kiryat Atim, Nevo, Baal Mon. These names have been changed. And Sivma. They named the cities, they, they renamed the cities they built. The descendants of Machir, the son of Manasseh, went to Gilead and conquered it, dispossessing the Emori who lived there. And Moses gave Gilead to Machir, the son of Manasseh, and he lived in it. Yair, the son of Manasseh, went and captured its villages and called them Havot Yair, the villages of Yair. Novach went and captured Hanat with its villages and named it Novach after himself. Okay, so here we are, and we see that about half of the largest Israelite tribe at that time, Manasseh, decided that they also wanted to stay in the Transjordan region, all right, up here, probably for about the same reasons that Reuben and Gad wanted to. Now, while nothing is said of it, this would have been a very traumatic and contentious matter. Because for a tribe like Manasseh to split itself in such a manner meant that there was a great disagreement among the many clans that formed it. And that was a pretty serious situation. Okay. This also meant that two men were vying for top dog for prince, for Nasi, right? head of the tribe of Manasseh. And undoubtedly, this splitting of the tribe with part living in the east side of the Jordan and the other part in, in the west, well, this was going to be a problem over the years. And it's probably the reason they did this was so they could have some kind of peaceful resolution to their disagreement. Now, we're not given any details about how all this came about. But from this point forward, we're going to start hearing the Bible speak about two and a half tribes right, that stayed on the east side of the Jordan. That means Reuben, Gad and half of Manasseh. The remaining clans that formed the other half of Manasseh moved over to the east side, and they went with the other tribes on into the Promised Land, and they settled it. Now, Reuben settled directly on the east bank of the Dead Sea. While Gad inhabited an area more east of the Jordan River, a little bit north, all right, they were kind of located between the, the southern end of the Sea of Galilee and the northern end of the Dead Sea. You see all this area in here? Now, the half-tribe of Manasseh settled on land that began at the southern end of um, the Sea of Galilee, approximately. All right, and went all the way north as far as about Mount Hermon, way up here. Now, this didn't all happen immediately. It wasn't nice and neat. It took scores of years before these boundaries took any form at all. But even then, the makeup of these territories fluctuated with time and political circumstances. Okay. Now, as was customary in that era, these three Israelite tribes rebuilt some of the cities they had destroyed in the battle with Midian. 
changed the city names to some Hebrew city names, and they settled there. Now, the reasons for rebuilding a city rather than starting fresh somewhere else are many. But in general, it is that, A, a city was invariably located near a good water source, and water was not easily available everywhere. And B, there was usually, there were usually established roads and paths built up to each town, each city, where traders and merchants brought needed goods. C, the most obvious reason for their doing it this way was that the building materials from the previous city were just laying there, okay, ready to be reused to construct the new city. And since most construction was of stone, it was generally a matter of piling the stones back up again. Now those of you who have been to Israel with me have seen dozens of enormous earthen mounds called tells. Scattered all over the land. These tells are the remains of ancient cities that once existed there. But they're now covered over with many feet of dirt and debris brought in by centuries of wind and rain. The thing is, you see, that every tell is a system of layers. And looking like a layer cake, each layer represents a once thriving city that was destroyed. And the layer just above it represents the next city, which was built upon the former destroyed city, using much of its rubble and and building material. And sometimes they have found tells, these mounds, as many are 18 or 20 layers of civilizations, all stacked on top of each other. I have no doubt that the cities that the army of Israel destroyed in Moab had already been built upon the ruins of yet even more ancient cities. And now, Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh would simply repeat that process and add yet another layer to the many tells that they occupied. And after them, another civilization would do the same. Therefore, identifying these city names that we see in Numbers 32 is quite difficult in our time because the names only existed until that city was destroyed. And then the next new city built upon it was usually given a new name. Very often, interestingly, it was actually the same name, but it was just in a different language. Let's move on to chapter 33. Open your Bibles to chapter 33, page 191. Numbers chapter 33. These are the stages in the journey of the people of Israel as they left the land of Egypt, divided into groups under the leadership of Moshe and Aharon. Moshe recorded each of the stages of their journey by order of Adonai. Here are the starting points of each stage. They began their journey from Ramses in the first month. On the fifteenth day of the first month, the morning after the Pesach, the people of Israel left proudly in view of all the Egyptians. And while the Egyptians were burying those among them who Adonai had killed, all their firstborn, Adonai had also executed judgment on their gods. The people of Israel moved on from Ramses encamped at Sukkot. They moved on from Sukkot and camped at Etam by the edge of the desert. Then they moved on from Etam and turned back to Pi-Hahirot in front of Baal-Sphon and camped before Migdol. Then they moved on to Pinai-Hahirot, passed through the seed of the desert, continued three days' journey into the Etam desert and camped at Marah. They moved on from Marah and came to Elim. And Elim were twelve springs and seventy palm trees, so they camped there. They moved on from Elim and camped by the Sea of Suf. They moved on from the Sea of Suf and camped in the Sin Desert. They moved on from the Sin Desert and camped at Dovka. They moved on from Dovka and camped at Alush. 
They moved on from Alush and camped at Rephidim, where there was no water for the people to drink. They moved on from Rephidim and camped in the Sinai Desert. They moved on from the Sinai Desert and camped at Kivrot Hatava. They moved on from Kivrot Hatava and camped at Hatzrot. They moved on from Hatzrot and camped at Ritma. They moved on from Ritma and camped at Ramon Peretz. They moved on from Ramon Peretz and camped at Libna. They moved on from Libna and camped at Risha. They moved on from Risha and camped at Kehla. They moved on from Kehla and camped at Mount Shefer. They moved on from Mount Shefer and camped at Harada. They moved on from Harada and camped at Machalot. They moved on from Machalot and camped at Tachat. They moved on from Tachat and camped at Terah. They moved on from Terah and camped at Mitka. They moved on from Mitka and camped at Hashmona. They moved on from Hashmona and camped at Mosrot. They moved on from Mosrot and camped at Benai Yachan. They moved on from Benai Yachan and camped at Hor Hagidad. They moved on from Hor Hagidad and camped at Yotvata. They moved on from Yotvata and camped at Avrona. They moved on from Avronan and camped at Etzion Geber. They moved on from Etzion Geber and camped in the Tzin Desert, that is, Kadesh. They moved on from Kadesh and camped at Mount Hor, at the border of the land of Edom. At Adonai's order, Aaron the Kohen went up on Mount Hor and he died there. On the first day of the fifth month of the fortieth year after the people of Israel had left the land of Egypt, Aaron was 123 years old when he died on Mount Hor. The Kenani king of Arad, who lived in the Negev in the land of Canaan, had heard that the people of Israel were coming. So they moved on from Mount Or and camped at Zalmonah. They moved on from Zalmonah and camped at uh, Punon. They moved on from Punon and camped at Avot. They moved on from Avot and camped at... Oh boy. This is a good one. Let's see. Yeha uh, Afarim at the border of Moab. They moved on from Iyim and camped at Devongad. They moved on from Devongad and camped at Almon Divlat Ayim. They moved on from Almon Divlat Ayim and camped in the Afarim range in front of Nebo. They moved across from the Afarim range and camped in the plains of Moab by the Yarden across from Jericho. And they camped at the Yarden extended from uh, Beit HaYashmot all the way to Avel HaShitim in the plains of Moab. Adonai spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho and he said to tell the people of Israel when you cross the Jordan in the land of Canaan you are to expel all the people living in the land from in front of you. Destroy all their stone figures. Destroy all their metal statues. Demolish all their high places. Drive out the inhabitants of the land and live in it. For I have given you the land to possess. You will inherit the land by lot according to your families. You are to give more land to the larger families and less to the smaller ones. Wherever the lot falls to any particular person, that will be his property. You will inherit according to the tribes of your ancestors. But if you don't drive out the inhabitants of the land from in front of you, then those you allow to remain will become like thorns in your eyes, thistles in your sides. They will harass you in the land you, where you are living. And in this event, I will do to you what I intended to do to them. Hmm. What we have here is a brief travel log, if you would, of the Israelites' journey through the wilderness. And we can learn several things from it beyond simply their route. For instance, we find that even though it's said in earlier passages, that Israel left Egypt on Passover, that's not technically correct. For we're told that they left Egypt on Nisan 15. 
which is the first day of the feast of matzah, first day of the feast of unleavened bread, the day following Passover. However, as I have explained in previous lessons, we will soon see that the biblical feasts of Pesach, Passover, and Matzah become fused, such that the two become celebrated as one, and the whole celebration is called, alternately, Passover or Matzah. Now, allow me to restate this, because it may help to understand the difficulties that some scholars and pastors and Bible students have in coming to a conclusion as to what day it was when Christ was crucified. Now, Passover, by scriptural ordinance of God, was a one-day festival that was to occur on the 14th of the Hebrew month of Nisan. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was a seven-day festival that was to occur beginning the day after Passover. Therefore, it was to start on the 15th day of Nisan. So, Passover, one day, and Unleavened Bread, seven days, all right, taken together are eight consecutive days of feasting, but are, in fact, actually two separate feasts that just happen to run consecutively. You with me? Now, let me also point out a key piece of information. The way the original Egyptian Passover was conducted and the way Passover was performed after leaving Egypt and then into the, at a future time is a little bit different. Okay. For one thing, in Egypt, even though the Passover lamb was killed and its blood was smeared on the doorposts of the homes on the 14th of Nisan, the Passover lamb was not eaten until a few hours later after dark, which meant what? It was the start of a new day. Nisan 15. Okay. Recall that the biblical way of determining the end of one day and the start of the next was at sunset. So during the daytime of Nisan 14 in Egypt, the lamb was slaughtered and the cooking process begun. And then after dark, when the day has switched to the next day, they ate it. Now, the other thing to understand is that while technically Nisan 14 is called Passover, and it was on this day that the lamb was slaughtered and prepared, the Lord did not kill the Egyptian firstborn until when? Yeah, until midnight, we're told. After the Hebrews had eaten the Passover lamb, right? Therefore, since the day had changed back at sunset, around 7 p.m., it's calculated then, the Egyptian firstborns were killed when? On the 15th. Early on the 15th, which thereafter would become the first day of the seven-day biblical feast of unleavened bread, matzah. Then the following morning, it was still the 15th of Nisan, right? Okay, That's when the Hebrews gathered and left Egypt. Okay, That's a little different than we typically think of it. But that's how it actually happened. Now, in teaching the book of Exodus, I've taught this in more simplistic terms. I guess would be the way to say it. Using the vocabulary that the church uses most typically associated with the Exodus. That is, the common way of speaking that the Passover marked the smearing of the blood's lamb on the doorpost, the eating of the lamb, the Lord's killing of the Egyptian firstborns, and then Israel living Egypt. Now, part of the reason that the church first presented the Egyptian Passover in that way, even though technically it's a little bit off the mark, is likely because of some confused Gentile scholars who didn't particularly want to hear anything the Jewish rabbis had to say about it and could have straightened them out pretty easily. Right? And they didn't understand the Gentile 
scholars understand that A, there was a slightly different Egyptian Passover versus all future ones. B, that the Exodus, Leviticus, and even Numbers protocol of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread became modified in Deuteronomy and then further modified by the establishment of certain traditions. And C, as a result of B, the technical scriptural definitions of the Passover day versus the Feast of Matzah are one thing, but what the common Jewish way of speaking about them was and how the Jews enumerated them and what they called them became something else entirely. Indeed, there eventually rose these different traditions, varying traditions among the Jews about how to do Passover and the Feast of Matzah, and they were all happening at the same time. Generally speaking, one tradition of how to do Passover and Matzah was used by the Jews living in Judea. Another was used by the Jews living in Samaria because they had broken away from the Jerusalem temple and had built their own and even had their own separate priesthood. Yet another was established for Jews living way up in the Galilee because they had a journey so far to get to Jerusalem to the temple, and still another tradition for Jews who lived out in the diaspora of the Roman Empire, all right? in other words, Jews who didn't live in the Holy Lands at all, all right? and they had to do this to account for their living among pagan Gentiles, and sometimes the absolutely impossible travel distances necessary to get to the temple in Jerusalem for the ceremonies. Now, I don't mean to go off on a big tangent here, but sometimes, sometime we'll discuss the Passover. Matter of fact, maybe we'll even do it this coming Passover. Okay? As it occurred at the time Jesus was crucified, and I'm going to do my best to explain why there is such disagreement right, on which day he actually died, and even whether the Lord's Supper was the Passover Seder or was something else entirely. And along with the reality that the order that things occurred at the Egyptian Passover and on what day they occurred was not followed in subsequent Passovers. That there were several competing traditions of just how to do these, plus the use of everyday common Jewish uh, terminology that, by the way, we find used in the Gospels, which really confuses us. So... Probably this Passover, we'll go over all this very carefully. We also have an interesting problem in that the synoptic Gospels don't match the Gospel of John as to how all this went in our New Testaments. That, however, is understandable when we understand that the synoptic Gospels were from the viewpoint of Galilean Jews with their own Passover traditions but is generally agreed that the Apostle John, who wrote the Gospel of John, had become a Judean Jew after beginning life as a Galilean fisherman. So that's how complex this can get and why it can be confusing. Anyway, so the beginning point of the travel log of Numbers 33 is Ramesses in the land of Goshen, down in Egypt. And the day they left Egypt, the day Israel left Egypt to start their exodus, was the 15th day of the first month of the Hebrew ritual calendar year. Remember, the Hebrews used several different calendars for various purposes. The month was called Nisan. Now, we're only given one other date in these verses, that of Aaron, the high priest's death, on the first day of the fifth month of the 40th year of their journey out in the wilderness. And it happened at Mount Hor. That means that very little time elapsed from the date of Aaron's death until Israel marched up to Moab, then we have the Bilam incident, then the Midianite war, which probably lasted just a few days, and then Moses died. 
All of this probably happened in a span of not much more than three to four months. Okay. Now we're also told that Moses was instructed to write down this itinerary by God. Now, what was the purpose of doing that since the Torah has been recording it all as we go along? Well, all we can do is speculate because we're not really told why. The reality is that if we go back and check on the name places that the Israelites encamped, the ones we've encountered at least up to now, we're going to find that this list in Numbers 33 doesn't match. Okay. We're going to find a few place names missing. We're going to find some others added. Now when we count them up, we find that 42 stations, in other words, places where they stopped, something significant or another happened. 42 of them are listed in Numbers 33. So some scholars have tried to find the significance in the number 42. And I'm not convinced there is any. If we look hard enough, we can find other uses of the number 42 in the Bible, such as the seven-year period in the end times that Christians call the, uh, the tribulation being divided into two 42-month periods. Okay. Even the Matthew version of Yeshua's Genealogy consists of 42 generations. But it would really be quite a stretch to find some common theological cord that connects all this with the number 42, and I really don't see it. Um, Maybe sometime in the future the Lord will open my eyes to something about it I'm currently missing. At the least, most scholars and rabbis agree that what we have here is a listing of stations that Israel passed through where something of significance happened. And in total, this is a reminder to future readers of Israel's arduous journey and how the Lord at various points instructed them and punished them and provided for them, destroyed some of them, saved most of them. It's a reminder of just how much Israel had to overcome in order to escape the grip of Egypt and to claim the land that the Lord set apart for them. And I think it has achieved its purpose because I cannot think of a greater event in Israel's history, an event at least of an uplifting nature, that is seared into the minds of every Jew than their exodus from Egypt. Now, there are only a few of these 42 locations that are even known to some degree of certainty today. As a result, there are many maps with various routes of the Exodus indicated. and I don't think it's worth our while to even deal with it. Because to a fault, these maps basically show the Israelites just wandering around the Sinai with the traditional Christian location of Mount Sinai towards the southern tip of the Sinai Peninsula as the hub of their travels. The fact is, the Sinai could never have supported a group of 3,000 Israelites, let alone 3 million. Okay, I just don't buy it. Don't buy that location. There is not a shred of archaeological evidence supporting an exodus that follows the traditional itinerary. The long and held intractable stance that so many Christian scholars have on this issue of the route of the exodus is the primary reason we have so many secular scholars, even more liberal Christian scholars, doubting that there even was an exodus. Because they insist on continuing to look for artifacts of the Exodus in all the wrong places. Okay. I, I am reasonably certain that the real Mount Sinai is in Arabia. Right? In an area at one time held by Midian. Why? Because that's what the Bible says. It's not all that tough. And so do such notables, by the way, as Philo and Josephus say 
that it was known to them that the location of the mountain of God is in Arabia. You know, they probably ought to know better than us. Many artifacts from that era have been found around the former area of Midian on the southwestern Arabian Peninsula that exactly fits the Hebrew culture and that time period and the biblical descriptions of geographical characteristics of Mount Sinai. And there is a wealth of local Arabian folklore here right? Um, that supports all this. They say this is where Moses and the Israelites were. No such folklore or tradition exists whatsoever for the southern Sinai Peninsula, but where Moses was. Now, as we arrive at verse 50, the recorded itinerary of Numbers 33 reaches its final station. Abel Shittim in the steps of Moab. And it was here where the Lord gave Moses general instructions about just how the Israelites were to go about conquering Canaan. And in a nutshell, he says you're to drive out all the people who currently live there. Okay. Then Israel is to destroy all of their idols and their idol worship paraphernalia. And wherever an altar, a temple, or a high place to a pagan god has been built, tear it down. To be clear, Canaan was to be emptied of its people. The Lord doesn't want them there anymore. The detestable religion of the Canaanites was to be overthrown, every remnant of it done away with. The Lord did not order genocide. We hear that all the time, don't we? We hear people say, oh, God said, go in and annihilate them all. That is not what he said, and this is why I read it with emphasis today. Okay. But it was understood that those who resisted the Israelite takeover, the soldiers in battle, or those who refused to leave after the battle was won, yeah, they're to be killed. Also inherent in the instruction a long-established God principle is that any of them who would forsake their false gods and join Israel were welcome to do so. Under no circumstances, though, are the Israelites to allow a foreign people or tribe to remain as a separate people apart from Israel, nor can any God but Jehovah be worshipped in the land of Canaan. That was the deal. Now, please keep this set of instructions in your mind from here forward. Because what happens when we decide to modify God's instructions because it seems more merciful or more fair or loving or tolerant to our human, politically correct sensibilities, that's just rebellion. Plain and simple. And the result will be disaster. Now, next in verse 54... Instructions are given on apportioning the land among the Israelite tribes. But wait, hasn't the Lord already given these instructions? Well, yes and no. In Numbers chapter 26, the land apportionment was spoken of in terms of taking a census of the tribes as a precursor to dividing the land up according to the size of each tribe. But that was when there were 12 tribes to divide the land among. Now, there's but nine plus the half tribe of Manasseh. And this is because Reuben and Gad plus the other half of Manasseh received permission to settle on the east side of the Jordan River and by doing so offered to give up any right to territory inside the promised land. Chapter 33 ends with a dire warning that wasn't taken seriously, by the way. From God to Israel that if they did not follow his instructions precisely about the method used to take Canaan, bad things were going to happen. Let me quote to you the last two verses again of chapter 33 of Numbers. 
But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall come about that those whom you let to remain of them will become as pricks in your eye, thorns in your sides. They shall trouble you in the land in which you live. And it shall come about that as I planned to do to them, so I'll do to you. Israel has never heeded this warning. Joshua didn't. David didn't. Not even the modern Israel that has returned to its homeland after a 1900 year exile has obeyed this divine directive. It still allows foreigners not joined to Israel to reside there. It allows pagan religions, primarily Islam, to exist alongside the worship of the God of Israel. It even gives enemies positions in its governing body, the Knesset. It allows and promotes atheism. It allows and promotes homosexuality. It allows and even defends Muslims controlling the temple grounds of God's former dwelling place. But even worse... It gives away portions of the promised land to its enemies for unfulfilled promises of peace. Land, the scriptures say, it has utterly no right to dispose of because they don't own it. The Lord owns it. Until Israel stops these practices and secures the land as instructed that we just read, returns to the Lord and repents, there's going to be wars and terrorists and suicide bombings and some group of people or another who are going to devote their lives to making Israel miserable. And by the way, don't anyone shake your head here knowingly and think, oh, how dumb can Israel be? Because most of the problems in our individual lives As members of God's kingdom, that entity that Paul refers to as the Israel of God or true Israel, are because we do not secure our lives. As instructed, we do not obey the Lord and repent, and so our lives are made miserable. And by the way, the land the Lord set apart for Israel... The land that Israel would soon conquer and possess at Joshua's leadership is the West Bank. Think about that for a minute. Does that name sound familiar? Huh. That's right. The land that our current and former and before that administration in America demands Israel give up to their enemies. The West Bank. That's the very land that the Lord said was for Israel and for Israel alone. The Israelites have paid a terrible price for 3,300 years of refusing to allow the Lord's explicit instructions regarding that land and to follow it closely. Do you suppose that those nations like America, who insists that Israel continue to disregard those instructions, are going to be spared God's wrath? I don't think so. How about the approximately 50% of the church that insists that Israel give up its land because the Jews supposedly no longer have a right to it? But we do. We'll start chapter 34 next week.